0: Coming up on Tech Nation, it's all about data. Who's collecting it and why? And how it can serve us, and maybe not. Leo Mar from Red Ninja joins me to talk about smart cities around the world. Then Tech Nation Health Chief Correspondent Daniel Kraft thinks perhaps we can crowdsource medical questions. While Tech Nation contributor Gary Davis reminds us that we love free stuff and we pay for it with our data. Finally, what happens to all that data we collect to prove a drug is safe? Krishnan Nanabalan from Inveni AI sees value in it. All this coming up on this week's Tech Nation.
1: Let's take five with Moira Gunn. This is 5 Minutes.
0: In 2013, genetics professor and noted researcher Sean Carroll spoke to me about his book, Brave Genius, A Scientist, A Philosopher, and Their Daring Adventures from the French Resistance to the Nobel Prize. Often we try to pigeonhole people by their professions, scientist, accountant, writer, fill-in-the-blank. But human lives are complex, especially if you were living in Europe during World War II.
2: Well, in the late summer of 1939, uh, Hitler invaded Poland, and France and Britain were pledged by treaty to come to Poland's aid. But they really didn't. They declared war on Germany, but they did not intervene in combat. And then what began after Poland fell was was called the phony war, about seven or eight months where the armies were aligned facing each other, but outright war didn't erupt until May 10th of 1940, when Germany invaded Holland, Belgium and Luxembourg and France. And that's sort of the beginning of World War II in in Western Europe um, for Britain and other countries as well. And in a short amount of time, to everyone's surprise, especially French people, France collapsed. And really, in a matter of days, the outcome was uh, decided. It took another month for surrender. And uh, most – a good chunk of northern France was occupied, including Paris, for the next four years until the Allied invasion and the combination of bombing and ground troops and the resistance pushed the Germans out and eventually won the war.
0: No matter what your profession, this caught you by – By surprise. We're talking about two Nobel Prizes, ultimately, one in literature, one in physiology, shared by four people who lived through those times. And they were all living in Paris in 1940 when Germany invaded France. Who were they? What were they doing at the time? And how did their lives change?
2: Well, their lives changed remarkably. And I'd even assert that it was in sort of a perverse way. The German invasion propelled them to their Path to greatness. So, um, for three of them, I think that was certainly true. One was the writer Albert Camus, who was a totally unknown, who was working on a mediocre newspaper in the spring of 1940 and toiling on a novel in his spare time. Another was a zoology graduate student named Jacques Minot, who at 30 years old was a relatively underachieving uh, graduate student who hadn't quite found his direction in research. And a third was uh, Francois Jacob, who was at the time a 19 year old medical student hoping to become a surgeon. And what happened is in this sudden collapse of France, they all had to sort of find a new path. And for Jacob, he um, fled the country and eventually uh, joined up with the Free French Forces and served as a medic outside of France for several years. I'll get back to his story in a second. Uh, Jacques who stayed on site in Paris, joined the, the French resistance. And uh, at the same time he completed his doctorate, he started um, really living a double life as both a, a member of the resistance and, and a scientist by day. And Albert Camus had a bit of a journey back and forth between French Algeria and France, but published his first couple books during the war. And really, by a matter of attrition of his colleagues in the resistance, wound up becoming the editor of what became the most famous underground resistance newspaper called Combat. And he wrote some of the most stirring and eloquent words uh, anyone's ever written in journalism in the few days of the uh, liberation of Paris in August 1944. So the transformation for each of these people over the course of four or five years was a matter of either from anonymity to fame or from sort of um, a meandering, not such a great sense of urgency or purpose to a very clear sense of purpose. And in the case of Jacob's, he was so badly wounded in Normandy in 1944 that he couldn't pursue a career in surgery, decided to pursue a career in science instead and wound up winning the Nobel Prize 20 years later.
0: This interview in 2013 with genetics professor Sean Carroll talks about brave genius, a scientist, a philosopher, and their daring adventures from the French Resistance to the Nobel Prize. His latest book is The Serengeti Rules, the quest to discover how life works and why it matters. I'm Moira Gunn. This is 5 Minutes. Today on Tech Nation, it's all about data, seemingly everywhere. Lee Omar, the CEO of Red Ninja in Liverpool, England, joins me to talk about smart cities around the world and how we can better take care of each other. It just takes better data. Then Tech Nation Health Chief Correspondent Dr. Daniel Kraft Gives us insight into how we can crowdsource medicine. Can we really expect our one doctor to have all the answers? Then, who do you trust with your data? Regular Tech Nation contributor Gary Davis reminds us that we love free stuff, and the exchange is our data. And finally, what about all the data that gets collected to prove that a drug is safe? Is it one and done? Or can we learn from it? We'll hear from Krishnan Nananbalan, the CEO of Inveni AI. And now, Lee Omar from Red Ninja. Well, welcome to Tech Nation, Lee.
3: Thanks, Moira. Glad to be here.
0: All you have to do is look at the data. Clearly, people are moving to the city. How do we have to build our cities, change our cities for the future, to be ready for the future?
3: Yeah, you're right. I think you know cities are growing uh, massively. Uh, we're all moving into cities. Uh, we're urbanizations huge. And I think you know if you look at the way we move around cities, that's changed so much. Just even in the last five years, you know we've now got electric skateboards, scooters, Uber, wheels everywhere. All this stuff, and it's you know we don't need to have a car anymore. And I, th- I think that's the the big change I'm seeing in cities is. The old model, or maybe the US model of a city, is a big, sprawled city. You need your car to get from the suburbs to the centre. But the the new cities, I think, are uh, urban dwellers. You know, I live in a downtown area, and that's that's the way cities were in medieval times, really. So I think we're just moving back to those kind of walkable downtown cities where we live in the city, you know, we play in the city, we work in the city. Um City centers have, have kind of been dominated by by retail quite a lot the last you know, the last few generations. I think that 's changing, so I think it 's about what experiences can you have in cities and we need to get together face to face and that 's often in a city we can communicate you know through the internet, but we still need to look each other in the eye like this don 't we yeah. to get that connection and you know do the do the deal or get the relationship and and i don 't think we'll ever replace that
0: you 've done a lot of advising to governments from the from the national level on down to the city and community yeah. level. Yeah. What are they looking for? What kind of clues are they looking for about what to do about the future?
3: Yeah, so I think technologies just change at an exponential rate, and I think it's it 's difficult for for people in the non tech sector to keep up with it so kind of i 'm in tech but'm i 'm a very sort of humanistic person so I'm easy to talk to and I, and I can understand everyday challenges so I kind of translate a lot of the cutting-edge technology into sort of uh, a way that a layman could understand and take advantage of so you know the, the sort of technology that we're creating is normally for, for the good of society You know, I, I can give you an example of, of what we're doing in the UK around transport so the problem with solving is if you have a heart attack or, or a stroke, you need to get an ambulance within eight minutes, and the the ambulances aren 't getting there quick enough, and that 's just because of congestion it 's not the fault of the the driver or the system, so we use artificial intelligence to control these traffic lights in real time to move cars out of the way, so an ambulance can get to get to the patient on time and save the lives. And that's you know that's an example of uh smart cities you know we're integrating different data sets we're using artificial intelligence you could do this without you know with the current technology you know you could sit in the traffic light control room with with your mouse and control traffic lights, but it's hard you know so so this is why we use you know these algorithms and and technology to to do stuff at scale which humans just can't do because there's not enough of us.
0: That really gives me a different picture about what we might, how we might evaluate. I think might be the word, the performance of our city. Um, of course, there are you know different corporations, organizations, government facilities providing services. But the whole idea is how good is that service, and what might we do? How do you integrate all that? How are we going to get there?
3: It's a big challenge. You know, it's getting people around the table to, to talk openly and honestly and, and try and have a bit of vision. You know, there's there's ethics involved in all this stuff. But um, we've got to come out of our, our silos that we've been in for too long and and kind of work with people we don't normally work with. And that's that's how we'll get the new services that are fit for purpose for today. And I think... That's what smart cities are, are supposed to be about. They're, they're not just about the technology; they're about improving people's lives. And if you know, if we haven't got smart citizens, I don't think we've got a smart city.
0: Now, tell us about Red Ninja. That's really that's that's a different kind of organisation.
3: Yeah, so Red Ninja is is my company. We, we found it in Liverpool. Um, so it's called Red Ninja because if you're good at computer programming, they say you're a ninja. And the red comes from, um, that's the colour that Liverpool Football Club play in. So we put I two. knew we'd
0: get down to the football, okay. Yeah, <laughs> so, that, so it,
3: that's how we got it. But we're, we're a mixture of designers, data scientists, um, computer programmers, electrical engineers. So we can create hardware and software. So gizmos, or we can create websites and apps and algorithms. So it's a very modern type of company. But everything we do is around trying to improve people's lives and using technology to do that. So we're working a lot in digital health and a lot in smart cities and, and transport are kind of the two areas that we, we focus on. In digital health, uh, we're trying to solve one problem. And this is a, this is a, a problem which I came across with a, a personal story that, that I can share. So I was, um, I was a carer for my granddad. Uh, towards the end of his life he, was, um, he had cancer and he was living with dementia so my family, me and my sister would care for him and my cousins and um, one day when we went round he'd, he'd had a fall and it was, it was a really bad fall. He'd, he'd fell in the middle of the night in, in the bathroom, he'd broke his cheek, he had like a black eye and he was, he was alone for six hours and it was a, it was a terrible experience for him and and after that his life deteriorated and 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 eventually he died so i wanted to use my sort of technology design approach and solve this problem you know i don't want people's granddads on the floor for for 6 hours it's it's a real problem and it doesn't have to be like that so i took it back to the the techies and they said let's use sensors let's use data and be better at detecting the fall but really, the problem we need to solve is how can we prevent the fall in the first place? And so we've created an app which looks at um, sort of multiple criteria around fall prevention. So we so we get a carer to do a risk assessment through this app, and the app spits out a personalised plan of interventions to do which reduce your likelihood of falling. So it's just it's it's a sort of old school approach, but using technology. And this is now used thousands of times, and it's preventing falls in the UK by 28%.
0: How does it prevent falls?
3: So falls, um, there's kind of like 12 factors which might cause a fall. It could be something as simple as you've got the wrong footwear, or it could be your medications, your multiple medications might uh, give you a side effect, or it could be around hydration, or it could be the environment of your body. your room or or your muscles are deteriorating so once we know what the problem is then we'll give you some interventions to work on so it might be do some exercises on your legs or it might be change your shoes you've got or lay out your room slightly differently exactly because that's you know that's that's what people fall on it might be a rug in their bathroom you know something, something
0: simple as that
3: i know and if you're getting on and you're you're a bit older It's a a big impact in your life. So, yeah, we've created an app called Safe Steps, and this has been deployed across the UK in the National Health Service. You
0: have very interesting clients. How do they approach you how do you how do you work usually you see something a, a company that has hardware and software skills and they say the first thing they say is so we can do artificial intelligence and machine learning yeah. and please contact us here and we'll send somebody out immediately to talk to you about setting up a contract yeah Use isn't set up that way
3: <laughs> no no we, we, we probably should be like that and have a chat bot on our website <laughs> but i think ultimately you know we we design these digital products because we we empathise, and we everything we do is about listening first. So we, we, we have an approach where we say, listen, then think, then do, and just keep it to rating. And we need the experts to tell us, you know, how we solve this problem. We're good at technology and design, but we're not health experts or we're not transport experts. We need to work with the experts to create these new products.
0: In terms of of your step program, for example, you're actually yeah. looking to elicit behavioural change, yeah. Um, but you're also looking to see behavioural change throughout cities, throughout. How would that happen? And what kind of behavioural change would you be looking for?
3: Yeah. So, for the last four or five years, we've been trying to work with uh, people in the transport sector to create more livable cities. So, I think. Um, the behavioural change we're, we're trying to to make happen is people get out of their cars and use alternative forms of of transport. So, uh, we've created a product called iSensing, and um, this product helps cities plan for the future of transportation. So, if you as cities invest in their transport infrastructure, they might build a new rail line or a, a walking path or a cycle path. and this is happening, and, and cities are changing they need to build it in the right part of the city. So the, the, the way you build it in the right part of the city is you understand how people are moving around now. And if you know where people are moving around now, you can develop the right paths, say. So if you think of an example, um, and this, this this has happened in, in, the, in the 60s, um, architects and urban planners started to design paths in schools in, in Connecticut based on footpaths in the snow. So they wouldn't build any of the paths. They'd let to, they'd look at the foot, uh, the footprints in the snow of where the children are walking, and that's where they build the, the paths. So we kind of do that digitally so we can understand how everyone is moving around the city. If are using big data and sensors, it's all anonymous, it's all private, but we understand the trends of movement. If we understand how people are moving we can help the transport planners respond to that demand in the right way.
0: So it's not what looks pretty or looks very organised and neat, but how are humans actually using the city?
3: Exactly, exactly. So we're we're doing this in Sao Paulo, in Mexico City, in Madrid, in um, Eindhoven, Helsinki, a lot of European cities, uh, Manchester and a lot of South American cities and... And we've 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 started uh, working in in Boulder, in in the US. So we we now have a presence here, and we're hoping to work more in the US.
0: Well, that's great. Since you're going to be working in the US and in other places, and you're a UK company, and I noticed that your website is Red Ninja dot which we'd say dot com here. Yeah. dot uh, uk
3: That's right. Now you can't.
0: You just can't get a .dot com. You can't just say .dot com, so we can get you anywhere in the world. Yeah,
3: the .dot com wasn't available, and um, I've been I've been trying to buy it, but it's. I guess it's um,
0: announcing that on the radio really bad idea. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Well, maybe it has to slightly change your name.
3: I I think what we're doing is we're creating products, and those products have their own brand. So the transport planning brand is iSensing, the fall prevention is Safe Steps. The ambulance prioritization is called Life, and they all have um, websites.
0: Okay. So we'll just remember redninja.co.uk.
3: Yeah. Because we're a UK company.
0: Very good. Lee, thank you so much. I hope you come back and see us again.
3: I'd love that, Moira. Thank you for your time.
0: Leo Omar is the CEO of Red Ninja, based in Liverpool, England. More information is available at redninja.co.uk. I'm Moira Gunn. You're listening to Tech Nation. Smart cities, smart anythings need data. Tech Nation chief correspondent Dr. Daniel Kraft. Suggest that we might ask the crowd, or at least some of the crowd, when it comes to medicine. Daniel, welcome back to Tech Nation. Thanks. Now, I want to ask you, you know, crowdsourcing medicine, crowdsourcing medicine to anybody, I mean, can you do it, number one? And is that really a smart thing to do?
4: It depends. Um, We all want our physicians to be top of the field, always reading the literature, knowing exactly what's going on with you. Superhumans. (laughs) And, you know, I trained at Stanford and then Harvard and I learned certain ways. We read certain journals. We had certain protocols. Um, That was sort of the, let's say, the mass general way of of, uh, treating patients after a heart attack, which is quite well done. But what if we could glean uh, as a patient or a clinician anywhere, what is the, not just the crowd, but what does the experience of the world tell you when you're making a diagnostic or therapeutic decision? So we can think of crowdsourcing. What we try and do in health and medicine is go to read our journals, go to conferences and, and learn from others. But we're entering now this connected digital age where potentially in real time we can use the wisdom of other patients and clinicians to give us the almost the best available knowledge to do the best by our patients. And that, that one example of that's happening now at Stanford, they have a platform called the Green Button, uh, greenbutton.stanford.edu where a physician at Stanford who has a patient with, let's say, a challenging condition, and they don't know whether to treat with drug A or drug B, can look at all the other Stanford patients who have had a similar issue and find Both a patient...
0: Both there and in the past.
4: Correct. And that will give them a what they're calling a bioinformatics consult, because there may not be a double-blind perceivable-controlled study to look from to look at the Stanford experience. Uh, UCSF is trying to do something like this with all the UC uh, healthcare data. And I think part of the future of medicine will be, When I'm treating a patient, I'm going to get the the world's knowledge at my fingertips just in time, leveraging artificial intelligence and machine learning to bring what I need to know to pick the right statin, the right surgery, the right diagnostic workup. Because a lot of healthcare now, we make mistakes. We're we're slaves to where we trained and what we've learned from individuals. And now we can apply wisdom in new ways, including each of us as patients, as individuals, to start to donate our data uh, to make these things work quicker. I'll give you one fun example. There's an app called Sick Weather, uh, and let's say you're trying to understand uh, is influenza in your in your neighborhood. You could self-report that I have the flu, and that will show up on your Sick Weather map. So maybe you'll wash your hands a bit extra before you uh, uh, go out or shake hands with people. Um, that could be used by epidemiologists to do a better job of predicting. Um, where they need to do public health measures and make sure folks are vaccinated. And that's a fun sort of app that's self-reported. We're seeing examples of television shows where diagnoses are being crowdsourced. What was the name you mentioned to me? Diagnoses on Netflix. There you go. Where sometimes hard to diagnose conditions, you know, even a specialist may have seen one or two cases. When you let millions of people see that issue, maybe they're going to go, oh, I had that or my cousin did. One of the early examples of that was a mother posted on Facebook a picture of her child who had a funny fever and kind of a red tongue and says, you know, I'm not sure what's going on, but my son's got something going on. Some people saw her post and said, I know exactly what that is. That's this very rare condition called Kawasaki syndrome, which can be quite dangerous. It um, causes a fever and a red tongue, but also can cause a, uh, issues with the child's heart and heart coronary blood vessels, unless you treat it pretty soon. And that was a crowdsourced diagnosis Got that mother to go to the clinic and get it treated. There's a platform called CrowdMed, which also enables individuals to be disease, disease, disease detectives and leverage their time and resources to help solve often unsolved medical mysteries. I remember
0: traveling to Washington, D.C. during a period where I'd been there for a few days, and sure enough, all of a sudden, I was not feeling good, and I said, I turned over what I was doing to somebody else, and I said, okay, I'm just going to go to the drugstore. And I walked in, and there was this long line to the registers, and then I went over to where you're going to pick it. they were all empty, and I thought to myself, why don't you just watch the shelves?
4: <laughs> that's being done. So the CDC and other parts of the world were looking for evidence of pandemic disease. It could be uh, swine flu and people are showing up and buying their Pepto-Bismol. Those are sort of digital markers of an early sign of uh, an outbreak. And that's a perfect example. You saw that in real life, but what if we were able to do that more and more at scale where we're leveraging the data across the planet, particularly when diseases can now Fly at the speed of transatlantic flight uh, to be much more um, proactive and not wait before you sh- you know you show up in DC and you might want that alert on your phone and say hey careful there's an outbreak in uh, in the nation's capital wash your hands and 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 don't cough and on stay people.
0: away from <laughs> all these people. <laughs>
4: right. It might get even so specific. Uh, there's a lot of debate about privacy in Facebook, but apparently you can mine from Facebook t- data. And tell who and when in your social network someone's going to get the flu. So you might get a little alert, alert saying, hey, don't shake hands with Moira today. You know, 80% chance of catching <laughs> uh, the flu. But you want to catch it even before you get it. We've talked on other episodes about ambient computing, whether it's wearables or not, that can pick up your temperature and motion. Some of these now can give you early warning that, well, you're, you're, you've got symptoms of the flu a day or two before you're going to go full on. And maybe you should go to your pharmacy and get Tamiflu or other proactive measures, or don't infect your friends and family, because uh, a lot of it's about crowdsourcing that knowledge and applying it before you get sick, as opposed to after.
0: Got to be aware of what's going on.
4: Well, we all want now what's I like to call. I used to spend time as a flight surgeon in the in the fighter pilot world. We call it situational awareness. You want to know what's going on around you. Um, we use that now when we're, we're driving with Google Maps or Waze. We get the the, the map of the traffic sort of. Through the lens of thousands of people on the road ahead of you, so I drove to San Francisco today. I could pick the best route. So, what if you could extend that Google Maps or Ways analogy to crowdsourcing healthcare? There's a platform called Patients Like Me that was recently acquired, where initially very sick patients with uh, Lou Gehrig's ALS could share their journeys. There's an Israeli startup building an early Ways for Health called Stuff That Works, where people can share their experience. And so, does this drug work for? me or patients like me. So I think we'll start to build out these Google maps and ways for health, which you'll use to guide your own prevention, diagnostics, and therapy, as well as to inform the medical community what's working for very individual genetic subtypes, uh, locations, uh, and combining experience with the medical literature, increasingly mined with machine learning and AI to connect all those dots.
0: Well, once again, Daniel, thank you so much. It's been great. Please come back.
4: Thanks, Moira. And Everybody, please wash your hands. It's almost flu season. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Tech Health Chief Correspondent Dr. Daniel Kraft is the founder and chair of Exponential Medicine. The Exponential Medicine Conference 2019 is scheduled for early November at the Hotel Coronado in San Diego. More information is available at exponentialmedicine.com. We'll talk more after a break. Podcasts of Tech Nation are available on NPR One, iTunes, Stitcher, and other podcast syndication outlets. Coming up in the second half of our show, Tech Nation regular contributor Gary Davis tells us about who is collecting what data about us and why, while Krishnan Nananbalan from Inveni AI tells us what artificial intelligence and machine learning can do for us in the search for new drugs. Stay with us. The Tech Nation. The theme of our show is clear: companies, organizations, governments, and even the technologies themselves are constantly collecting data about us. It was a good time to bring in Tech Nation regular contributor Gary Davis, the chief consumer security evangelist at McAfee. Well, Gary, welcome back to Tech Nation.
5: I love being here. It's one of my pleasures in life. There you go. Me too.
0: (laughs) Now, I want to ask you, uh, because people ask me, why are these companies collecting all this data on me?
5: Why are they? You know, the simple answer is data is a new currency. In fact, there's this well-known internet analyst, Mary Meeker, who is the founder of Bond Capital. And every year she does this Internet Trends Report. And in 2018, she made a point of saying that privacy is a new paradox. We all love free stuff, right? The fact that we can use search for anything online for free, that we can share social media for free. We love that. But the companies need to use the data from what we do there in order to make money. They have to be able to serve. Oh, wait a minute.
0: Ads. You mean it has to be a closed loop system. <laughs> Well, I'm just saying that,
5: that it's they not, aren't, they it's aren't not doing...
0: really free? Well, it's it's
5: free from a, a certain perspective. But
2: <laughs> yeah. there's value
5: there. In fact, one of the things that I love talking about uh, a couple of years ago, Facebook acquired WhatsApp, right? And right. What's that? WhatsApp. Big yeah, app. Yeah. And the reason was, or one of the prevailing thoughts is, because if you looked at their financials, they really weren't doing that well financially. but. They had a lot of users and a lot of data. And what they in essence paid for it was $35 per user to acquire WhatsApp. And so it's the it's the data that's being collected and how that data can be used to to build a better service and, and provide you more benefit. So you'll continue to use that service. It's this this self-repeating thing that they they're trying to do the right thing, building a better service that you want to use. The way to do that is to have more data about you in order to make a better service.
0: Well, think about WhatsApp. One person calls somebody else around the other end of the world, or that person usually is their neighbor, but they happen to now be at the other end of the world. You know that if you trace if you own WhatsApp. Yeah. And then if you pair that with what's on Facebook, it's
5: more than twice. <laughs> yeah, you have a lot of information. Again, if I'm Facebook, that, that provides me the opportunity to really figure out what is it that that this person is doing, what, what's their behaviors like?
0: And if I have another company, not a Facebook, yeah. that says, you know, I want to know everybody from California that's in England, that's traveling to England, they could actually
5: answer that question. They could. The, the, the amount of data they have is, is, is quite breathtaking, and, and it kind of feeds into the second part of this narrative is, is that because there's a lot of concern about how this data is being used from a privacy perspective, that it, it's driving regulations. For example, last year, Europe came out with the General General Data Protection Re- Regulation, which GDPR, which has gone into effect, California, um, as of January 2020, will have the California Consumer Privacy Act, which is very closely aligned with GDPR. So more and more government is taking a look at how these companies are using this private information and trying to make sure they're doing it in the most appropriate way possible. And in essence, giving consumers more control over what these companies are collecting and how they're storing it.
0: And I love, we used to hear, Germany says this, France says this. Now it's states in the United States say this. California says, we have have laws. I mean, it, at some point, it's got to all kind of even out. Everyone's going to get pretty mad or they wouldn't have these laws.
5: No, that's just it. And that's why these they're bringing these regulations into effect is they—they they, there's so much out there about the concerns of consumers and the use of this private information that 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 governments have had to say, OK, we need to, to help regulate this in order to keep our customers safe, our consumers safe.
0: And, and frequently when people ask me this question, I go, they don't even know. What they're going to use it for? They don't know what the value is. Over time, finally, they find somebody. Oh, if you you want this? Oh, we yes. could sell that to you.
5: <laughs> yeah, No, that's exactly it. They don't. But the, and they 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 default to let, collecting more is better. Yeah. Right. The more data I have, uh, again, I may not have a use for that data today, but tomorrow is another day, and that data may have a different context, a different value tomorrow. And I think that's the the real challenge here is how do we how do we Come up with with a method because you you the worst thing we can do is to stifle innovation because you want better services you want companies like Facebook and Google to be able to provide you the best possible service and and you you probably understand they need data to do that but, but what are the healthy boundaries of the use of that data that that will allow me to to feel comfortable that that data is not being misused.
0: We're just getting to the point where the reputation of a company to be trustworthy with your data, that's start, just starting to come into play. We never used to think of that in terms of trust. Trust was, was there, did their product work? Or if their product didn't work, did they act appropriately? Now that we know they have their data, I mean, different companies will certainly be more trustworthy than others.
5: Agreed. And it's and funny you meant that. We actually did a, a survey last year that we, we asked 1,000 consumers. And the question was, Do you trust company X with your personal information like age, sex, address, marital status, et cetera? And we we provided some well-known companies. The companies we surveyed were, as you might imagine, IBM, Facebook, Dropbox, Google, Microsoft, Apple, and then Costco and Coca-Cola.
0: Interesting list. Interesting Interesting list, list. for sure. Okay, now which company did... Uh, was considered. Did more people say I would trust this company the most from that list? Which company was that?
5: You know, and I don't think this is going to be a surprise to anybody. It was Apple. You know, and Apple has has throughout their whole existence has really focused heavily on honoring the privacy of their customers. And 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 actually, I would argue it's probably a, a big part of why they're they're so highly valued. Is that they know that if you buy an Apple product. That the Apple company is going to do all they can to, to safeguard your private information.
0: And I have to say, having looked at this a number of times from a cybersecurity standpoint, Apple products have just a handful of viruses and all the, the terrible malware that can be on there in all of their products versus all the other technologies. Yeah. I mean, and it's not just they have twice as much. We're talking thousands, 50,000, 100,000 more. And then you just get literally a handful on the Apple products. So it doesn't surprise me. Once you know that, it doesn't surprise me. Now, no one said they trust uh,
5: Coca-Cola the most with their data, did they? Well, 7% did. 7%. Uh, 7%. And, and we, we kind of thought on that for a little bit. And, and the, the question we asked ourselves is. Why would anybody pick Coca-Cola? Because what would Coca-Cola have about a consumer? Because when you go to the grocery store or you go to a vending machine, you're getting that beverage, but there's no association, for example, with that transaction in the vendor per se. So I, I can't imagine where we where it, it's not a stretch for a, a person to know, well, Facebook has a lot of information or Google, because they need that information to... To deliver the service, but Coca Cola, they just need to make sure that they have their beverage at that place I want to buy it at any given moment. And if they,
0: but if they have any any information on me, I trust them with it. <laughs> well,
5: yeah, I, I, I guess you so. could say. That. I
0: guess question. you could say. That. Yeah, that's it's, <laughs> the I, rest I, of these jokers I don't <laughs> trust. I trust them more <laughs> with my data
5: than that. No, it's a good point. It's a, it's a fair point. I just you, know, it was, and then it was it was amazing. Well, here's the thing: next to Apple, the most trusted company was Costco. And although Costco probably collects more information about a— What you eat and drink and— Yeah, because they have that they The data. clothes you buy sometimes, yeah, all, for,
2: prescriptions, and, they have yeah, all kinds of shop? things. They yeah. so sell
5: gas, everything. The, so they probably have more information. But it was surprising to me that, that, that with these other you know tech, technology juggernauts on the list, that Costco was second only to Apple as being the company they would most trust to, to keep their private information private.
0: And everybody in the middle, most of them, did they just operate on information. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's how they make money. Well, you started with Mary Meeker, and, you know, it's very interesting. She has for years done these analyses of Internet trends. This is someone who has been watching uh, first the dot-com boom and then the social media rise and then this explosion of information. It's fascinating to me that she calls this a paradox yeah. you know that while we're trying to keep all this p- privacy there's a whole huge sector of the world economy based on collecting all this data and essentially we're giving away our privacy because we want the free stuff
5: yeah, yeah we love free stuff we do and 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 i and i think that's that is going to be the challenge for a while for us It's like we the, 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 if we can enjoy these services and not have to pay for them directly um, And it's funny. I I honestly believe that especially there's a generational play as well where people today who grew up accepting the fact that these companies are going to collect this data in order to deliver these services. And they may at some point in their life make a conscious decision to kind of tune tune back the amount of data they're sharing because they understand the, the behaviors of these companies. That may be a logical outcome. Matter of fact, you've heard over the past couple of years where a lot of Younger people, in particular, who move to different platforms because of some of the concerns they have about how these social media companies, the bigger, well, more well-known ones, have been handling their data. So, I it, it's going to be. I I agree with Mary Meeker's sentiment that privacy is a paradox. That that we're just going to have to really work hard to find that right balance between enabling innovation and making sure that we can enjoy these goods and services as we'd expect, and and understand that, that we value the right for consumers to, to keep that data in their control.
0: Well, thanks for coming in, Gary. Always a pleasure.
5: My pleasure. Thank you.
0: Tech Nation regular contributor Gary Davis is the chief consumer security evangelist at McAfee. I'm Moira Gunn. You're listening to Tech Nation. The testing of a single drug for safety generates a mountain of scientific data, And for every drug that succeeds, there are eight drugs that fail, all together generating a veritable mountain range of scientific data. I asked Krishnan Nananbalan, the CEO of Inveni AI, what happens to all that failed data, and is it worth anything?
6: Many times for drugs, for things that succeed, of course, all the data makes it all the way through to the FDA and uh, it's accessible through all the government sites, so clinicaltrials.gov, uh, the publications that come out, it's accessible through PubMed. Uh, the, uh, the NCBI, which is a government-funded uh, agency, does a really good job of making this available you know, on a very regular basis to anyone who wants to do it. But for the drugs that fail, it is still uh, hard to actually access the clinical trial data Although the FDA passed a regulation, I don't know whether it was five to six years ago, that companies are supposed to deposit all the data, even of the failed drugs, and they do deposit it, but it sits with the FDA, and it's not that easily accessible. And the reason is that no one makes an effort to actually go and clean it up and make it accessible. So, uh, But all is not lost. If you're tech savvy uh, and know where to look, you can always look at that but nothing happens without an origin right there's always an origin to everything so something doesn't make it to clinical development without proving its value in the lab in the university right and even even then there is a gap between proving some a concept that works on the lab bench to showing that it's worthwhile enough to invest money and time to see whether it can be converted into a drug. So that's usually referred to as translation in the industry. Trans- and so
0: that's all pre-trying uh, to get the drug approved. Right. There's a whole lot of data before that.
6: There is a whole lot of data before that. And if you actually look at all the success stories and some of the failures, they have similar patterns, so, you know, all breakthroughs come seemingly out of left field, but actually no. They they have, you know, the A history kernels of uh, all the uh way along. breakthroughs all the way along. They kind of they're accretive, you know. People work on successful things, no one goes out of failure. So they success builds on success and eventually it attracts the attention of uh, uh, you know uh, the industry who are looking for solutions to treat uh, diseases, and then they ask the question, "Can it be done?" And that's when the translation happens, right? Translating a basic science uh, discovery or invention to an applied, uh, uh, you know, solution in the clinic. Okay. We, even before it's a pill, usually it's a drug in a either a aqueous. I mean, it, either it's water soluble or not, but. In animal models, it's first tested to see whether it has the desired clinical effect. And the most difficult task, uh, you can show in an animal model that something works, right? So you're, you're trying to, let's say, I wish this was possible. My mother's an Alzheimer's patient, that you're trying to cure Alzheimer's, right? You're looking to reverse dementia or something like that. And maybe you're seeing, you have an animal model and you're showing improvement in memory or something like that. But the next thing is, how do you then take that observed phenomenon and translate it into the clinic and human trials? So you need animal models that are similar to the human disease. And this is the problem in Alzheimer's. There are no good animal models. So every time we go to the clinic, we have to make assumptions that we saw this in the animal model, so this should work in human diseases. And if you think of neuropsychiatric diseases, these are even harder because we don't understand the molecular nature of these diseases as much as in cancer or in autoimmune diseases by comparison. right? So to come back to the, the data issue, right? Uh, it's not that the data is not there. It's there in all different places in different forms, Uh, It's there as uh, regulatory submissions. It is there as published pure science papers. It is there as data deposited uh, in, you know, uh, even accessible repositories. Uh, It's there in proprietary databases in the 500-strong biotech-slash-pharma community. And... Like you said, uh, success as many fathers, failure as none. So when something fails, people just forget about it and move on to the next.
0: And frequently, if you've ever had any experience in picking up somebody else's data, you say, well what's this column mean and and what did you eliminate here, and did you round up and did you round down and You took five measurements, but then you started taking six and did the data move over and if it's a failure, you say it's like that's well, that's in the that's in the rear view mirror right. and you're trying – for you to have to go in and make sense of it, and, and when you can say clean it up is a nice way, you're really restructuring it and almost re-verifying it to
6: make sure whatever data you do have is real data right, and it's right data. Right, and this is where artificial intelligence really comes in handy. Um, so I'm not a computer scientist. I'm a, my basic training is in molecular biology and genetics, and I ha- you know, came into this industry purely by accident. Um, I got recruited to create these large functional genomic screens. And I said, OK, I will try it out for a year. And I never went back into academia. <laughs> uh, but <laughs> having said that, uh, you know, so you have all this data, right? And you have patterns that match successes and patterns that don't match successes. OK, but there's, there's a lot of value even in the failures, right? There's, there's an underlying uh, not just the data itself, but there were there were other conclusions. You know why you failed. That's that's equally important to know because then you won't repeat that mistake. Or it may have a partial success uh, that can be used in a subsequent experiment. So this kind of uh, analysis and interpretation is facilitated by machine learning and artificial intelligence. So you know. If you if you take just the medical field, almost five thousand papers get published daily. Daily, yeah, it's just impossible to know. No, no, not all of them are of the same quality or you know relevance. But how do you know which one is the best one? And if you actually say I'm going to only read journal uh, articles in science and cell, you're going to lose a lot because actually, and those uh, would
0: be the highest rated, if you will.
6: Yes, and. Those also, you know, tend to be the most flashy papers, but not necessarily the most valuable in terms of the entire field, uh, or you know, that are actually the, the bricks of progress in any given line of inquiry, right? So you do need all of those individual articles. Uh, and how do, you, how do you read all that? And this is where machine learning and artificial intelligence really comes in handy, that you now train the machine To analyze these papers or numerical data or clinical data, AI can also be used to analyze images. Uh, For example, uh, histopathology, Uh, uh, you know, uh, a good example is now they've proven that AI is uh, really good at uh, analyzing mammograms. Uh, better than p- what pathologists do and here is a often spoken anecdote there is a anecdote out there that uh, get your pathologist to read the um, uh, his, uh, the slide before lunch because they're tired after lunch
0: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> For sure. No one will argue that humans operate different at different hours of the day right. in different different circumstances and computers the same exactly. 24-7 exactly. every day of the year.
6: There's, there's another aspect to it. So human intuition and experience uh, is compulsory. You know, it's hard to replace that. um that intuition and experience also lends to bias in analysis. So experts tend to believe that they are the best in whatever they do. And they may be for what they're established in, but they may not be for something that's new and just breaking through, right? On the other hand, if you take a purely mathematical approach, um, and just a machine-based approach, you are sacrificing the intuition and experience. So the the real uh, path to success is combining the two. So use AI and machine learning to increase the efficiency, comprehensiveness of the analysis so you don't get tired. Reduce the bias in the analysis so that it, you know, especially when you're gathering data, sorting it, organizing it, there's no bias in that. But when it comes to interpretation and going to the next step, I don't think there's any machine that has a frontal cortex like I have or you have. So that makes a difference. We can make intuitive leaps that I don't think a machine can. I mean, I got fascinated by AI because of Stanley Kubrick. Really? HAL 2000. (laughs) I'm still waiting for that. Yes. (laughs) 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 <laughs> well, maybe
0: Hal and will be here. <laughs> what is
6: very curious, I listen to WNYC, um, uh, is that they were running a couple of uh, uh, blogs uh, or programs on the impact of 2001 Space Odyssey on science and space travel and everything. It's quite interesting that it has had so much of an impact.
0: Oh, completely. And one of the things that it didn't really tell us, although computers, HAL was available, the computer in 2001 Space Odyssey, um, we didn't see and we don't see the data behind it. We know in drug development now, month after month, year after year, all these serious clinical trials. But throughout all of this, the, the size of the data, how much data is out there, individually isn't even comprehensible. I can't really compare it to other data that we know around the world. There's a huge amount of data there that is – there's not really a comparison.
6: There isn't. And there's, there's also one distinction. People often, when they talk about data, think about the volume and the size the volume of data in medical field is not as much as, say, in the financial field. or All the transactions. All the transactions, right? They're going to billions and zillions. Uh, but the complexity uh, in the medical field are probably two or three orders of magnitude more than in any other field. This is because you're looking at a composite picture here. It's not just one science. Uh, you know, you need, you need to apply technology you need to understand pharmacology you need to understand biology and then you need to understand clinical practice the way it's being practiced today and then you need to get all this in a way that's okay for the FDA or the EMA to approve right so you're going through it's you know the comparable in other industries probably only com- industry i can think of is the aeronautics industry you know because there you can't you can't have no error right even no error. Yeah. even a single at a point like what Boeing is discovering now is not okay, right? So so the complexity of data is very high, but the good news today is that uh, we have invested in making this data available. They're just available in different places and different forms. And so it's almost like, you know, the analogy is... Uh, 10 blind men trying to describe an elephant by touching it at different places, and they're going to come up with a very different description, right? So you've got to bring it all together, make a composite picture, uh, connect the dots, and see where where are the intersections, and then come up with a hypothesis.
0: Now, are you looking at inveniai AI to develop your own therapeutics from all this drug data, or are you looking to make it available to
6: other companies? We make it available to other companies. So many AI came out of uh, a parent company where we were doing everything. We were uh, developing an analytic, analytical methods, right, uh, trying to analyze Literature data, molecular data, clinical data, um, image data, and ask the question: Can we come up with answers to why this drug failed or why that target is important, and so on? Um, when we came up with, uh, we came up with some just to prove the point. We applied this approach for repositioning or uh, re-innovating old drugs. Um, because the, the, the null hypothesis, the starting hypothesis was that let's start with drugs that have gone to phase two at least, which means that they have proven safety in human beings. That's what is tested in phase one. And in phase two, you're testing for first signs of efficacy in human beings. And most of the failures happen by phase two, right? So we're asking the question, okay, why did it fail? Because, In the preclinical, so before it entered clinical development, people saw enough evidence to actually go and spend all this money to move it into the clinic. But then when we came to the clinic, uh, it did not behave the way we thought it would. Usually the reason is that we did not know enough about the disease. It has less to do with the drug itself, right? So especially when it comes to uh, chemical entities, These are well-defined. You understand how they're metabolized by the body. But if they don't do the job, that means that you probably used it for the wrong disease or the less optimal disease. And you don't know enough about what else it can do, right? And this is where to go back and reanalyze all the new data available since this drug was tested right? So you know the mechanism, you know its molecular target, you know the organ that you supposedly targeted. What else is known about this drug? What else is known about that biological pathway that you had targeted? Is it connected to other diseases? Are there other things that you can go and look at? And
0: all that knowledge is being developed constantly. You know, there's so much we could talk about, Krishnan. Um, I hope you'll come back and see us again. Will you do that? Absolutely. Krishnan Nananbalan is the CEO of Inveni AI. More information is available at InveniAI.com. That's Inveni, I-N-V-E-N-I, InveniAI.com. For Tech Nation, I'm Moira Gunn.